Welcome, you're listening to the Agile Unemployment Podcast, where in each episode, we take an in-depth look at being out of work. We'll talk about the programs and benefits available to you. We'll talk about the job hunting process itself. And most importantly, we're going to address the psychological and emotional impact that being out of work has on the individual. I'm your host, Sabina Sulat. I'm an HR expert and author. A few years ago, I lost my dream job and found myself unemployed for the first time in my life. I was frustrated by the lack of resources and information available to people out of work. But more than that, I was just stunned by the fact that we don't talk about unemployment. I took my experience and I turned it into a book and I now coach people to build resilience while they're out of work. If you are out of work, if you recently lost your job or maybe you've been unemployed for a while or maybe you're just afraid that you might lose your current job, this is the place to be. We're a safe place where we can talk about all aspects of being out of work. We can answer your questions and we can help you build resilience so that when you go back to work, you are stronger and more confident than ever. So let's get started. Everyone, thanks so much for joining us for a different pivot for us here on the podcast. I know most of the time I like to talk about the emotional side of being out of work or maybe some practical things for you to do. Today is a real departure, and I know I say I'm excited at every episode, but I'm really pleased to be able to offer this to you as the listener, and I owe a tremendous debt of gratitude for my special guest today. So I want to take a minute and introduce Laura Michelle Davis. Just how she has come to the podcast, those of you who follow me on LinkedIn, I found a tremendous article of hers I posted it. Thank you for the incredibly positive feedback that inspired me to take a risk and reach out to Laura Michelle to join the podcast. So Laura Michelle, welcome. Thank you. It's so nice to be here, Sabina. I appreciate your work. Thank you very much. And uh, we have a mutual admiration society because I appreciate (laughs) yours. Always good. For those of you listening, Laura Michelle is a writer and editor on CNET.com, and that's where Mm -hmm. I found the article. If you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, the work that you do. I know this isn't the realm of unemployment is not your mainstay, but you fooled me, but I'd love to learn a little bit more about you and also for our audience. Yeah, well, I can tell you a little bit about what led me to working on this particular piece on the unemployment rate. I work as a full-time editor at CNET, focus a lot on news and tech on the website. And my particular role, I work with a lot of personal finance writers. And so some of the stuff that you cover on your podcast, Sabina, in terms of looking at you know, helping your audience with the kind of what if and how does it affect me kind of questions, you know, that practical side you were mentioning. Mm -hmm. That's the side of personal finance that I've become accustomed to working with writers who are monitoring the economy and kind of asking those questions. What if I lose my job? What if there's a recession? How do interest rate hikes affect my finances? Um, How should I look at my investments with the stock market? So volatile, things like that. So. In the last several months, 
you know, every time this, uh, the, the jobs report came out, which it's published monthly by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and the headlines in all the major publications would, you know, say the job market is healthy, it's, it's robust, it's, it's tight, you know, um, the job market is stubborn. And the context, like, seemed to be that this tight job market was a problem, that having this reportedly low unemployment rate of around 3% or 4% wasn't allowing the economy to slow down in a way that the Federal Reserve wanted to in order to chip away at inflation and high prices, which which haven't gone down significantly. And so that led me to like a number of questions. And the first one was wondering why certain economists would want to push the country into a recession and have a higher unemployment rate. The most extreme version of this was uh, Larry Summers. He gave this speech back in June to the London School of Economics. And he basically was like, we need massive unemployment to fix things. I think he said, we need five years of unemployment above 5% or one year at 10% to contain inflation. So this kind of this idea of like rising joblessness, you know, people being out of work and not having an income and therefore like not spending the money they don't have, that was being presented as something that was not only necessary, but also positive. Basically, if you're someone who like cares about how working people are already struggling out there, that's kind of a red flag. Yeah, I'm um, there with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so that led me to my next question, which was is the job market really that healthy right now? Is it really that that tight? And how is it that there's this supposedly low unemployment rate when all there, there's all these other signs in society and in people's real lives that's kind of saying the opposite about this so-called economic recovery, you know? So how are we actually able to gauge who's really hurting and how they're hurting? That became the basis of my my research for this. That was the trajectory. I started to wonder how the official unemployment figure is actually calculated, who's included, who's left out. Is it true that there's really two job positions for every unemployed person? Mm-hmm. What, why is everyone talking about a labor shortage and companies having difficulties finding employees? And if that's the case, why are so many people really discouraged from finding work or, or saying that they have difficulty? Yeah. So that's that's basically where I ended up working on the article. Okay. No, that and that helps. And you're hitting on a lot of notes that I, I hear about a lot. Uh, I will talk to the same person on two different days and their perspective has been completely shifted based on whatever headline they saw right before they started talking with me that day. Mm-hmm. And it can be overwhelming and confusing. So this is one of the reasons why I appreciated the article and I'm so glad that you are here. And I think you, you mentioned all the things that I've been following. I think most people have been following for months now. And so let's hit at some of the most recent things. I will tell you, I saw a spike in interest in what I do the day after the meta layoffs were announced. Mm. I don't know what Mm -hmm. happened. But Mm. suddenly people who had never bothered with me wanted to talk to me. I Mm -hmm. saw a few book sales increase, things like that, some more listenership for the podcast. And 
I think Twitter, we know that's its own little universe right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then Amazon, but Meta seemed to be it. And mm -hmm. it's really hard for people, you know, you read the headline, you feel the anxiety. And especially if you're not used to reading these things or you're not, you don't feel confident in your finance knowledge, your economy knowledge, things like that. So what should we be looking at, especially right now, that that might give us a really good idea? Besides your article, what else should we be looking at? Yeah, that's um, that's a good question. I mean, I think I agree with you. I think the re the recent layoffs in in tech are pretty explicit signal um, of what's happening. And I think there's there's a website called layoff.fyi. I think for the tech industry, and they they've been reporting um, all the layoffs this year and since COVID nineteen. I think there's been like somewhere close to 140,000 employees laid off this year in, in tech tech industry. So I think you're you're right. I mean, I think a lot of your the people who are responding to the meta layoffs are feeling anxiety and that's real real. I mean, it's a weird period because people have been talking about preparing for a recession for a for a long time now. So we've had all this time to like linger on these thoughts about what might happen. But then how do you prepare for a recession that you don't know, you know, how severe it will be, how long it will last? How do you actually prepare for a layoff? So, you know, there's a lot of useful information that some uh, personal finance finance writers will point to, making sure you have sufficient savings, which, by the way, most working Americans don't. Yeah. Um, keeping up your resume, you know, some of the stuff that you talk about. But then there's this element of like, well, you can do all that, but the macroeconomic picture is really out of our control. So that preparation is kind of mental, you know, um, all these employees who have had critical roles in these industries are getting notices the same day that their positions have been terminated. Mm -hmm. So someone is, you know, someone is crunching the numbers behind the curtain, someone's doing cost cutting and, and your position is no longer in the equation. And I think in times like these, I, I think it's just useful to to not lose sight of the the fact that you have value outside of your job. If you're laid off, it's not your fault. But to go back to your original question, I don't I don't know if we can point to one specific data source. I mean, the the Bureau of Labor Statistics actually has six different types of measurements of unemployment. Huh? And and they all kind of measure different things. And no, not like they're not none of them are really designed or intended to give a holistic view of the job market. They're they're based on a survey that contacts 60,000 randomly selected households across the country and records the, the employment status of each person. But they all have like certain weaknesses and they all, you know, it kind of comes down to, and I mentioned this in the article, you know, what, who is left out, who's not counted, uh, comes down to who's defined as unemployed, who's defined as employed, and who's considered part of the labor force or not part of the labor force. Okay. Now, and I appreciate that. And there's, for me, some comfort in the ambiguity that you just mentioned, because I think people want to know something that no one has the crystal ball. As you said, we've been talking about recession for, for years and waiting for it. And we still don't even know if it's really coming or not. 
-hmm. It's a constant. Someone said to me, I was part of a group call and someone asked the question of when are we going to get stability in the employment landscape? And I was the only person who I didn't take offense to the question, but I, it's not a stable thing because we're people, we're constantly changing. Our lives are constantly changing. And as you pointed out, there's so many interdependencies that you just really don't know. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I appreciated about your article. Thank you for listing a couple of really practical tips for people. See, guys, I'm not, it's not just me who's saying like you should always have certain things prepared. You should basically be in charge and responsible for your life. That's probably one of the most empowering things that you can do. You hinted at something earlier that I wanted to get back to and that what we're tracking, what we're looking at, and really how the government categorizes the data. I didn't know that there were six uh, different points, so that's really helpful to me in some ways. But you had this sentence in the article that I really liked because I think a lot of people have this misconception, but I'm going to read the sentence so I don't misquote you, but let's start with the misconceptions. An unemployment rate of 3.7% does not mean that 96.3% of people in the U.S. are gainfully employed. And I think a lot of people would be shocked at that sentence because shouldn't it be that way? And it's (laughs) not that simple. And again, it's a complex issue. So I think it's understanding if somebody were to think that we're just asking you to maybe think outside that statistic and maybe learn a bit more. So you started to hint at this. Can you elaborate on who are we missing? Uh, Who's not really a part of this hundred percent that we are looking at and why aren't we tracking these other parts of the population? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you you pointed to it in the simplest terms. The unemployment rate is the number of people without a job who are looking for work, divided by the total number of people in the labor force. But it's not; it's definitely not that simple. And so, part of that is that it applies only to the unemployment figure applies. Um, only to individuals who are considered part of the civilian labor force. So it's not the entire population. So that's the first thing. And the labor force is roughly around 60%, I think 62% of the population. So there's this low, that sounds, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but gosh, that sounds low. Yeah. So you have all these people who are, you know, the stay at home caregivers, Mm -hmm. uh, people who are retired students, um, people with disabilities, people Mm. in the military and prisons, anyone who's uh, 16 or younger, they're not factored in to the um, to the labor force in that among the labor force. The first criteria for determining whether someone is unemployed is um, if you're available to work. Okay. So, so if you've had a, like an accident and you can't go back to work, you're not counted in that pool of people that the unemployment number is measured against. So only people who are available to work now are counted as part of the labor force. The second criteria is that you've been actively looking for work in the last four weeks. 
And so actively looking means applying for jobs. So that means that if you've given up looking for work, right? Like you've been unemployed for a number of months, you're discouraged, you can't find a job that accommodates your needs or requirements, you are not considered unemployed. You're considered having withdrawn from the labor force entirely. So people who have stopped looking for a job because of being discouraged or for other reasons, like all of a sudden you have to take care of a, a, a sick parent or a child, you know, which happened a lot during COVID. Mm-hmm. So just looking at that. So like right away, if you remove all those people who haven't applied for jobs in the last month, your percentages are going to look better. So if you have, let's say, let's say you have like a hundred people and um, 10 of those people don't have a job, but they have been looking in the last month. So they're, they're considered unemployed. Okay. But then you have like this additional 20 people on the margins and they've just given up looking for work. Those are the discouraged workers. Mm-hmm. If you looked at that, the official government measure will give you a 10% unemployment rate because it will be 10 out of a hundred. But if you factor in the discouraged workers, so you add the 20 plus the 10, and it's out of 120, you'll get a 25% unemployment rate. Wow. So that's like the sticky part, right? You're basically mm-hmm. saying that people who are like so beat down or daunted or you know dispirited by the system, they're just no longer accounted as part of the labor force. So like if you're in your 50s and you got laid off and you do like months and months of interviews and you realize that there's just this incredible age discrimination in your industry and you stop looking, you're out of the labor force. So automatically, like that single statistic, just by that nature, is not a picture of who is not working. It's it's kind of a measure of like a certain sector of the population that's actively looking for a job. That is uh, kind of mind blowing, um, <laughs> and and I I speak for the people who aren't being counted anymore. I can tell you right now, we are still looking. We might mm-hmm. be dejected and disheartened, and I know it's not you categorizing us but anyone from the government listening (laughs) we are still looking we are still very much wanting to go back to work and we do believe we count but that sounds like the government's doing a lot of number skewing well there's this other component of it too which is like who's considered employed this was the other thing that was was really interesting to me um that so by definite by that definition if you are a part-time worker you are considered employed. And that can mean like if you're working just one hour a week or like five hours a week. And also if you're a temporary worker, you're counted as employed. So there there are millions of part-time employees who actually want full-time work. And, you know, tons of people who are temp workers who want permanent work, but can't get it. They're, so they are underemployed, right? Like they're not making enough wages to get by or they're in totally precarious situations, but they're clumped into the category of employed. Mm-hmm. So in, in practice, what that means is like the unemployment rate obscures how many people are actually living in poverty, not because they can't get a job, but because they can't get enough hours or can't get yeah. you know secure work. And the other thing that I that I realized was like a lot of people, I think this is pretty common too. A lot of people think that the unemployment number is based off of how many people are collecting unemployment benefits. Yeah, definitely. I, I've heard that. And actually, 
what's interesting is there's no formal link between the two. (laughs) So, you know, sometimes they rise and fall together, but there are, and part of that is because there are, there are just tons of people without jobs right now that aren't even eligible to collect unemployment insurance. There's a lot of people who are unemployed who never apply for benefits. Mm -hmm. Um, But the people who are not eligible, who don't qualify, independent contractors, freelancers, they were given uh, temporary jobless benefits during the pandemic. Yeah. But that dried up there. They can't collect them anymore. So like basically if you're a freelancer and then all of a sudden you can't get enough hours or you get an accident, you can't work, you know, you have no safety net. Mm-hmm. And then the other group of people who can't collect benefits are those who quit their job voluntarily, mm-hmm. or if you were fired for cause, so then you can't get it. And I'm, and I'm sure you've talked about this on your show, you know, unemployment benefits have a cap, they have a limit. So usually after I think 26 weeks is kind of the average or whatever your state considers a limit, you're on your own. So that means that if you've been unemployed for over that period of time, like you've been, you haven't been working for 27 weeks, you're considered long-term unemployed. And there's like millions of Americans who fall into this category, right? And that's a huge missing part of this indicator. Like that's very ruinous to a lot of people's lives, but that you don't see a breakdown for how many people are actually part of the long-term unemployed, like in that single figure. No, I, and I will say, thank you for saying that because there's a huge, first of all, there's a stigma to being unemployed, but Mm -hmm. then when you, I've capped it around the six month mark where this is where it really sets in because you're right, your benefits run out. Uh, your friends stop forgetting who you're, who you are is harder and harder to explain those gaps on your resume. When you interview, it's Mm -hmm. such a tough spot to be in. Now you're telling me my own government doesn't even, you know, they consider me long-term unemployed, which means six months is not a long time period. So to be suddenly categorized that way certainly doesn't feel right. So it's a lot more complex than I think a lot of people think. And one of the things that you brought up in the article that I found interesting because this isn't something I was really that familiar with. There are three categories of work that you write about and it's U3, U6, and then there's the acronym LISCP. And if you could, do you mind breaking those down a little bit and telling us what they stand for, who, who they represent? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, so the one that we've been talking about mostly up to this point so far, like the main 3.7 right now, Mm -hmm. the 3.7 unemployment figure measured by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, that one's called U3. That's what you're going to basically see economists and reporters citing. It's very technical. It's very limited. Then there's another BLS statistic. Some economists and researchers do cite it. It's called U6. And the U6 is often considered to be more accurate um, measure of the job situation because it actually does factor in these marginally attached workers. So basically discouraged workers um, who who are willing to work and have sought a job in the last year, but just not in the last four weeks. Um, so the U6 figure would include people who are underemployed, working part-time hours too, who would be, you know, would like to work full-time. So it just, it captures a lot more people who are 
existing on the margins of the labor market and it gives a better picture of who's being underutilized. So like for perspective, in October of last year, so 2021, the U3 rate was 4.6%. So that was like the official unemployment figure, but the U6 rate was 8.2%. Okay. And then this October, just last month's figures, the U3 rate that we've been citing is 3.7% unemployment, but the U6 rate was 6.8. So, you know, mm-hmm. kind of roughly the U6 rate is almost double. And then I found this broader figure <laughs> that's actually not used by the government at all. It's, it's calculated by um, a nonprofit research center that's called the Ludwig Institute for Shared Economic Prosperity, which you refer to as LISEP. Um, and they focus on low-income and middle-income families in the U.S. So that, that's an organization that's run by Gene Ludwig, and they've been measuring what they call the true rate of unemployment. And that calculation, in, based on their studies, is closer to 23.6%. Mm-hmm. So what 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 LISEP does with their data and methodology is is kind of fascinating. <laughs> so they like accept the the U3 rate for comparison but then they add these two stipulations. So the first thing has to do with the work week. People are only considered employed um, by their standards if they have a full-time job like 35 hours a week or more or they have a part-time job by choice. Like meaning they don't want a full-time job, you know, like maybe students have like a part-time job at a cafe or something. And then their sick, their second stipulation is that in order to be counted as employed, a person has to earn at least $20,000 annually. Mm. So basically it's saying if you're making poverty wages, and to be honest, like 20K is a very low poverty level, like um, you're technically unemployed because I mean, how do you even pay for housing or food if your monthly income is less than $2,000. And then what's really useful also about LISEP is that they break down the true rate of unemployment for different sectors and populations. So like the true rate of unemployment for Black people is 28.2% compared to 22.5% for white people. And they show like the disparities between men and women. The true rate of unemployment for women is much higher, 28.5% for women compared to 19.1% for men. And then also like educational levels. So like the true rate of unemployment for people who don't have a high school diploma is 47.6% compared to 12.5% for for people who have advanced degrees. And all this is, they break this down in really, really clear charts. So you, Mm -hmm. you can see it. And I included some of those in the article so that people can actually look at the figures and compare them against, you know, look at the U3, U6, and the LISEP, and then also going to LISEP's website and just looking at their graphs is also, you know, really useful to just get a, a graphic image. Yeah. And I, I appreciated in your article, this was where one of the first places I've seen this breakdown. And it, it's almost haunting how it you're forgotten in unemployment, but then you don't even count in the unemployment data like you already feel that people have given up on you that resources are unavailable to you and you're not even counted in your own government's data in some ways and this was just so eye-opening for me because I think for a lot of people it's either 
you're unemployed or you're not, and you're delving into these nuances that we have mm-hmm. to be aware of impact so much of the population. And I will say it, these parts of the population that do need the support, the aid, the help, the assistance, and the attention. So I'm really grateful that you've done this. What is the danger of us just looking at that that data point that we're all so used to looking at that now I'm really questioning? What is the danger of us just looking at that neat and tidy statistic uh, that we're yeah, trying that, to look for? Yeah, I think that's that's kind of the key question is, um, I mean, the, the unemployment rate is this like single indicator. It's used by businesses, investors, and everyone to, you know, to say what the health of the U.S. economy is. So generally when the unemployment rate goes up, you know, there's more fear out there of this kind of economic calamity. And then when the rate is low, people are are told to feel more confident, right? Mm-hmm. So you you basically get this rosy picture of the economy when it's not really the case. So when people hear the, this, the terms like tight health, labor market, you know, they honestly believe the economy is close to full employment. And so that also means that you know, all these people on the margins have a have this a great chance of getting hired and employ employers are just itching to hire everyone. You know, I heard I actually this was really relevant because I heard this someone the other day in a media interview and they said, right now, you know, anyone can get a job if they want one. <laughs> so that that was kind of like the first myth I wanted to dispel. Because when you paint this happy picture of unemployment statistics right now, it's it's really misleading people. Mm-hmm. into thinking that there are plenty of opportunities, you know, working people and, and the unemployed, you know, they have the upper hand, they're calling the shots because jobs are plentiful, which, you know, I think is kind of absurd. Um, and then there's this other component, which you talk about a lot, which is just opens the door to this kind of self-shaming cycle, right? Like mm-hmm. people saying, oh, well, if I can't find a job, it's my fault. You know, I'm not good enough. I'm not trying hard enough because there are, there are all these jobs out there. And so I think the headlines are kind of validating that that blame. And I would think, you know, a lot of your listeners would agree that the the people at the bottom of society, like the working poor and Black people, immigrants, they're also really used to being blamed for their own conditions. So, yeah, I mean, I think the other danger that I just wanted to speak to is like that it's not really talking about what kind of jobs are hiring right Mm -hmm. now. So like the economic situation in this country varies completely by city, depending on what city you're in, what state you're in. So it doesn't make like a lot of sense to aggregate everything into one mass. So like if you're an unemployed subway driver in New York City and you have a family to take care of and a home you can't leave, how does it help that there are jobs available in remote graphic design or social media outreach? You know, those skills like just don't align? Or what if there's a fast food restaurant or Walmart hiring in Oklahoma? You know, how does that help that job seeker? Right. So I just, I think it's a lot a problem on a lot of levels. And I just, I, for the interview, I wanted to talk to a lot of, I mean, for the, um, the article, I wanted to talk to a lot of people who wanted to poke holes in the statistic. And it was like, I found so many people like authors and economists and journalists and lawyers, they were all like coming from a different angle, but they all agreed in some way that that figure is not like a measure of economic hardship. 
um, and that it was that that rate was like vastly understating the problems. So like if you're considered, let's say you're considered employed, right? Like, does that mean you have a job that utilizes all your skills? Does that mean you're getting a living wage? Let's say you do have a good income. Does it mean that it's enough in your particular situation? You know, does it cover healthcare expenses, childcare costs, um, mortgage payments, or like, what if you have $150,000 in student loan debt right. and you're, and you're caring for your elder parents. So it's like, the flip side of the unemployment figure is that you're like ignoring the actual situation of people who have jobs, you know, those who are technically working, you're not taking into account if the jobs they have really matches their skill level, if they have livable wages. And so like one of the authors that I interviewed, her name is Alyssa Quart. She wrote this really thoughtful book called Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. Mm-hmm. And she kind of posed the question point blank. Like if, if you're talking about the job market as healthy, why aren't you talking about the quality of jobs? You know, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. Are you, are you in a precarious situation? Do you have stability? Do you have benefits? Do you have protections? And then you're also not taking into account all these different sectors that, that have problems with employment, you know, particularly racial gaps. So, you know, black people historically confront a lot of employment discrimination. Um, They're historically the last hired, the first fired. And so you get no sense from that figure of like the deep seated oppression that people face or inequality, you know, with different groups because the unemployment rate among black people, like we mentioned before with the Lisette figure is often double that for whites. And so you, you just get no sense of like how the job crisis is different for different people or how it affects groups unequally. Yeah. And I think that's something that we do need to start looking at more. And if we just use that, I'm going to call it like the sanitary statistic there, (laughs) that again, just keeps that problem out of the spotlight. Mm -hmm. And I know it's a complex thing, but if we just kind of gloss over it, we're not going to resolve it. And you, you've just mentioned so many different things. I think we could talk about this forever, but I do want to cover a few things while we have time. And you brought up this really, uh, you've mentioned, you know, the government statistic that's using and also how the government defines working. You mentioned in your article that there's, the definition that governments use is this kind of, it goes back several, several decades. I was a little shocked when I read it and I kind of giggled a little bit because it seemed a little ludicrous to me. How does that hold up in the way that we work today? Because the way we work now, maybe it is in response to the government ignoring how we look at employment and people deciding to own their own careers, Mm -hmm. own what they do, how they do it. How does, does that have any impact on any of these statistics that we're talking about? You did talk about, you know, the temporary worker, et cetera, Mm -hmm. but we're now in this day and age of passive income streams and side gigs. And Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I'm going to like my favorite thing to pick on YouTube (laughs) pranksters who, (laughs) you know, 
<laughs> Someone yesterday in a, in a meeting told me that they pointed out somebody on Twitter who made $2,500 from one tweet. Oh my gosh. And I'm like, I'm doing the wrong thing here. Uh, I feel that way every day. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad it's not just me. And we don't, but do you really want to sell, do you really want to sell yourself that way? (laughs) Well, that's the other thing. I do want to be able to look myself in the mirror. I love what I'm doing right now. Um, and I'm, I'm, I realize I'm very lucky to do that, but how does this way that we're changing employment, does it impact Mm -hmm. these statistics at all? Or are we going to have to change? Is the government going to have to change how they look at employment? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I don't, that's a big question. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't know either that the definition of unemployment was, was actually put set into place during the great depression and it hasn't changed. Um, that was something that Jean Ludwig um, brought my attention to. Um, and yeah, I think there have been a lot of changes. I mean, I think during the depression there was, there was an informal economy and then it kind of got formalized during and after the war, but it's kind of a, it's an area that I would love to do more research on, to be honest, but the people that I spoke to mostly talked about like how just difficult it's been to figure out the economy through the pandemic. There have just been like so many changes to work, even in the last couple of years, you know, some like in terms of remote work, industries that haven't fully recovered or bounced back, um, you know, like a lot of what we're seeing, you brought up the meta and Twitter layoffs. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of what we're seeing in with these layoffs and cost cutting in Silicon Valley is that these big tech giants are adjusting to these. They had these really big pandemic booms, you know, when everyone yeah. was work at home and stuff. And then well, they projected the metaverse and all this stuff. And then that was kind of a pipe dream. So, you know. <laughs> well, thank then- you. Because I said that and somebody argued with me. I posted about that and someone got very mad at me when I said it was kind of just an adjustment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's um, not a stable landscape. It's never meant to be. Mm-hmm. You know, work changes. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the, the big changes, I think, so there's the pandemic, like, you, mm-hmm. you know, and then there's the big changes like over decades. So a lot of people, if you talk to historians and economists, like a lot of people will talk to the last, like talk about the last 40 years um, because that's when you really see these big shifts, like yeah. un- unionization rates going down, um, really plummeting. You know that means workers have less protections. There's less um, pension-defined benefit programs. Then you have what you mentioned: this, this, these kind of the the influencer industry or whatever. You know, this the gig economy, these side hustles. And when I I talked to some researchers with the American Opportunity Survey, and they were talking about how gig work is really hard to get accurate data on. You know, it's really yeah. underreported. It's really understudied. They did a survey and they found that 36% of the labor force is made up of these independent workers, you know, so that includes like contract workers and freelancers. And I think a lot of those workers probably enjoy, you know, incredible flexibility and independence. And some do make a lot of money, like, you you know, what, $2,500 per tweet or whatever. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, often we only hear about the success stories and we don't really hear about the stories of how precarious it is. Um, mm-hmm. It's actually why a lot of gig workers want to be considered employees and not independent contractors. Mm-hmm. But then there's also, um, Sabina, there's this this kind of ideological shift. Because <laughs> I think if you ask someone 
in the baby boom generation, what it meant when someone had a second job back in the day, you know, mm-hmm. a side hustle or whatever you want to call it. Um, it usually wasn't. Yeah. Moonlight. Exactly. It wasn't like something to be proud of. Like it meant mm-hmm. someone really wasn't able to live paycheck to paycheck. And I think I'm kind of unique in some circles for saying this, but like, you know, if you have a second job, a side gig or whatever, I mean, it usually comes into people's lives because they need more money to survive or they need like some padding to pay debt or supplement their income. And, you know, sometimes it's presented as these work hard and succeed, you know, self-made man. And, you know, but it can also be like this cycle of desperation. I mean, maybe not if you're young and single, but you know, if you have a family and a job already, and I just, I remember this is going to age me, but I do remember when I had this realization, it was 2005. um, It was George W. Bush and he was giving a speech and there was this um, divorced mother of three from Nebraska. And she uh, talked about how she was working three jobs. So Mm. she was this single mother of three with three jobs. (laughs) And the president replied, well, uniquely American, isn't it? I mean, that's just fantastic that you're doing that. <laughs> oh, God. And I thought, like, no, it's not fantastic. No. Yeah. Well, you, so I, I will confirm that one of the stats that I give out a lot, because I think it's important for people who have either just lost their job or who are out of work, to know why they have to take such control is that 70% of all Americans, at least the last time I looked it up, live paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. And and that does not mean that these are people living outside their means. Uh, they live paycheck to paycheck because it hits their means and losing a job is an economic disaster. It really is because you and I both know unemployment, it does not cover your actual wages and all the other things that come as a result of that. Most people do work second jobs because you're right. There's a huge bill that one paycheck doesn't cover all that's needed. It might be an insurance reason, so many things. And I think that's why a lot of things that have been headlines over this past year about employment and so forth are so misleading. And I'm thinking about, I think this is a phrase we all want to retire right now, but you couldn't escape it. There was that, you know, the great resignation and (laughs) Mm -hmm. it was this (laughs) Uh, now I will date myself, although, you know, I wasn't an adult when this movie came out, but it was like this big network moment. If you know what I mean, where you're, shouting out the window, we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. Um, Yeah. Okay. You remember that movie, right? And Mm -hmm. everybody's resigning en masse because they want this rosy picture and everyone can have it. And it was so misleading. So how does that, or now we changed it and it became the great reshuffling because it just seemed like you were going from, it was like a cross move from, you were just really changing organizations, which is what people do. You weren't going out for anything better or different. Did any, does any of that impact anything that you reported on? 
Yeah, I mean, I 100% agree with what you were saying. I think that it, it came into the, my research by accident, just because a lot of the writers I spoke to didn't play into all that hype. I really like your um, your idea of retiring, retire the great resignation. <laughs> it sounds convoluted, but it's accurate. Yeah, I mean, it, a lot of them mentioned this wasn't really about resigning or quitting at all. And I think you're right that um, now, in hindsight, people are noticing that it was more of a reshuffling or a job shift. There were employees seeking higher pay or flexibility or better work-life balance. And so that's that's like a job hop, you know, like especially in accommodation and food service industry. But yeah, one of them, one of the writers I, I spoke to, Sarah Jaffe, she wrote this really interesting book called Work Won't Love You Back. And she made this point to me in an interview that people were citing all these aggregate numbers and not really questioning the details. So labor force participation did go down drastically during the, the pandemic. But yeah, does that mean that a whole bunch of people were, you know, saying, I'm fed up, I won't take it anymore, saying screw you to your bosses or going on long vacations? Did it mean that all these white collar workers were getting burned out? No, it was... It, there was a lot of decline in labor force participation for other factors, some of which had to do with people having to take care of their kids, take care of their relatives, fear of COVID. Some of it had to do with the natural aging of the population. You know, a lot of workers who were close to retirement age ended up retiring early. So there were, yeah, there were a whole bunch of other factors that weren't being examined, but then there was just this hype around the term because it 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 looked it looked good. Yeah, we we do love kind of a a, a gripping. We like a pithy phrase. <laughs> uh, we really do. Like quiet quitting is my. It's the mm -hmm. next one I want to see retired as well. Um, I, why don't we just say like working? Um, yeah. But <laughs> again, really complex issues that we are talking about and. I will recommend to anybody who wants to read it. I will repost it on LinkedIn. Uh, just a great article uh, written by Laura Michelle here. And again, the if you want to look it up yourself, the title is Unemployment Statistics Aren't Giving the Real Story of the Economy. Tells you everything you need to know in the headline. Uh, really appreciate that. So closing question I'm going to ask you is... Was there anything that really just stuck out to you as you were researching this, as you were writing it? We've hit on a lot of complex things and a lot of things that I was like, wow, I had no idea. Anything really stick out to you? Um, I mean, I I learned a lot from my research. I And again, just kind of would love to learn, learn more. But I, I guess the one thing which I think you talk about on this podcast is just the way that people talk about layoffs and unemployment is so kind of removed from the impact on people's lives. You know, you make so many, there's so many sacrifices that you have to do when you lose a job. Like you mentioned, you know, it's emotional, financial, physical, mental. It's, but sometimes it is just like this, this spectacle, like these, these losses from people like removed from reality when you get laid off and, you know, how does that affect your ability to pay rent, to put food on your table, to save for your for education for your children? And and then there's like this this other thing that I thought about a lot, which is after this 
after these big corporate layoffs, right, that you hear about in the news, it also has this effect on employees who are remaining, right? Mm Because there's like this, there's this fear and this loss of morale, right? Like there's this worry about, well, if I ask for a raise or is that going to be looked down on? Or, you know, there's this increased pressure to work overtime so you won't be swept up in the next round of layoffs. You know, so that kind of goes back to the the, the point you were saying about the, the great resignation or whatever, you know, that average workers don't actually have the, the upper hand in the economy. Yeah. Kind of some, I understand these are a little scary things that we're talking about and they're complicated, but I maintain education, knowing things, I think makes it a little easier to face the realities of them because the reality is not going to change but change maybe how we look at these things and look beyond that pithy headline that we might have been reading i know i will never look at that statistic the same way again thanks to you laura michelle so thank you (laughs) thanks for making me think i really appreciate it i really again cannot thank you enough for taking a lot of mystery is not even the right word but writing some of the wrongs of bad statistics and teaching our group what to look for and how to delve past that pithy headline to find out what's really behind it and some ways to look at how we work and how we're unemployed. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you would like to share with the group or how can we keep following you? Because this isn't the only topic that you write about and you write so well you clearly have this mission of educating people. Where else can we find you? Um, I mean, anyone can contact me on on Twitter. I do have a work account. I don't post very often. You can find me on LinkedIn like you did. You can email me. Pretty easy to email me, davis at cnet.com. I'm always open to talk to people. I really like people-centered stories. So I think in terms of like what's happening in the job market and the economy, I think we, we want to base our assessment as journalists on real life stories. You know, that's going to paint a much more accurate picture than any single metric. So if you have those stories, you want to share them with me, then definitely go ahead and do that. I think that is where we need to actually be focusing our attention as, as writers and editors right now. I I could not agree more. So thank you so much for joining us. And there you have it for today. I hope you learned something or heard something today that is helping you as you are in your out-of-work journey and that will help you normalize the conversation about being out of work. If you heard something that resonated with you, please show us support, subscribe, like, or comment on something. If you'd like to learn more information, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, Sabina Sula. I'm the only one. You can also reach out to me on my website, reworkingworks.com. You can also email me at ssulat at reworking.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to know about private coaching, more about the book, more about the podcast, I wish you luck in your getting back to work journey. I hope that you've learned something here that if it hasn't made that journey a little shorter, it's at least made it a little easier. Until next time, thanks for joining.